Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful again to be here and uh, particularly to meet some folk who weren't able to make it last night. Uh, last night, uh, we spent a fair bit of time getting the wisdom of the group on what's going on in the Australian psyche, what's going on inside our spirits, and particularly uh, about the subject of uh, where we're going, meaning and purpose in life, and our attitudes to death. And as you can see from this uh, choice, uh, this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, this session we're going to be concentrating on that subject, uh, which gives you the creeps. Uh, frankly, uh, we're going to be talking about death. Oops, who wants to do that? And that's indeed a very interesting thing that, no, we don't really want to talk about death, although death is so common. It is, in a sense, the great unmentionable. And so as we begin once more, I know we've prayed, but I'm going to pray again for us, and not least because some of us here will have been touched by death recently or are thinking of death in particular, and uh, we'll all need to hear the comfort of God's word and the comfort with which God comforts us. So let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we may indeed hear your word by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we will receive that comfort which comes from the God of all comfort and we will be able to live our lives in the light of your great destiny for us. And so we pray for these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, uh, in my part of the world, there's a, uh, a, a terrible rag that comes out every morning called the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, and the Sydney Morning Herald, which used to be owned by a fine Christian family, indeed an Anglican Christian family, well, they were Congregationalists first and Anglicans later, uh, called the Fairfaxes, but no longer. And so it is an entirely secular newspaper. And it's wonderful because if you want to know what the other side are thinking, uh, you just have to read the Herald. It, with one or two exceptions, there's a guy who writes called Ross Kittens who doesn't write from that point of view. But basically, uh, the Herald will give you the other side. Uh, now, there was a great miracle a couple of years ago in regard to the Herald. A miracle had occurred, and it was right because it was a Christmas miracle and an Easter miracle. And I think I'm right in saying this that the Christmas editorial, which used to be a Christian editorial written by a minister, the Christmas editorial that year, I think, had the whole editorial without any mention of the word Jesus. And I'm pretty sure the Easter editorial also had no mention of Jesus and certainly of death or anything like that. That, I would have thought, was a miracle, almost as great as the resurrection from the dead, uh, that you could write a story at Easter time without mentioning Jesus. But you know it's not a miracle. It's what our nation has come to and the Western world as a whole. It's symptomatic, I believe, of what you may call death avoidance, uh, our unwillingness to think about death. No mention of Jesus. Indeed, uh, from a newspaper, it, it gives us also a byline called Independent Always. I love it. I, every time I open it up, I laugh. Uh, because it's not no more independent than, uh, you know, Karl Marx. Uh, the, the Marxists were independent. It follows the secular line every time. Uh, there's no story to be part of because there is no God and no, we're only animals. We're going to die and that'll be it. There's no story to be part of. There's a tendency instead towards autonomy. Uh, autonomos, two Greek words, self-legislating. We are self-legislating creatures. 
And uh, since we're self-legislating creatures, we make all our own choices, which of course leads us to a, a profound aloneness, which is an interesting thing as well. Uh, commentators talk about a severe, deep and persuasive anxiety in the Western world around death, even a neurotic anxiety. Uh, it's much remarked that we don't discuss death and we avoid thinking about it as often as we can. And therefore, death as a sort of boundary doesn't do its role of giving us purpose and meaning because we don't think about it at all. Now, uh, partly death has disappeared because we don't kill our own food. We used to. We don't now. I don't suppose you've ever killed a chook. Uh, do you call them chooks in South Australia? Sorry, it was just a big pun. We came from Yorkshire in our part of the world. Okay, uh, we don't see or experience death regularly, or perhaps at all, as our ancestors all did. Uh, we live a very long time com compared to uh, earlier generations. Our bodily health is far better um, than it's ever been. Uh, our leisure time is large and our capacity to entertain ourselves likewise so we don't think about serious things. We have funerals without bodies which verge on entertainment and do very little for grief. And so these are the sort of things which are indicate to those of looking at our society that something funny is going on with our unwillingness to think death. Now, last night we had a great time uh, listening to the group, the wisdom of the group, uh, thinking about these sort of matters. Um, and so uh, in order to get the wisdom of the group encapsulated, I'm just going to ask somebody uh, to come down the front here and talk to me about this. Let me see. Uh, that, that lady there in purple. Uh, purple's my colour. Uh, and I think... Um, I think she'd be a really, really helpful person to come down. I'm ignoring the promptings here. Michelle, how nice to see you again. Uh, do come up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That gave you a shock. Sort of. You did kind of warn me you might do it. Oh, sure. <laughs> we have to be truthful, Peter. In entertainment, you're never truthful. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay, uh, we just saw we just saw a man not being truthful, pretending an animal was speaking to us. Yeah, that, that was cute, though. That was cute. Yeah, uh, uh, Michelle, uh, thank you for uh, taking part out in front with me. Tell me what you do for a living. Um, I'm a GP. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, so you see an awful lot of us one way or another, not necessarily people here. We're not talking about patients in particular, but you see an awful yes. lot of Australians. Yes, I do. I see um, lots of people in very vulnerable times. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, any, any word for us on well, what's going on in the psyche of Australians from your observation? Um, people don't like to be broken. And um, most especially young people, um, and by young I mean pretty much anyone under the age of 50, in fact even 60, um, you're not meant to be broken. And so whenever there's anything wrong, like you have a cold or, or you have a more severe illness, um, that's terrible because you're broken and uh, it's just not meant to happen. Young people never die um, and you certainly don't talk about it. Um, and if um, myself, for example, might suggest something that might suggest to in improve your health, you don't need to do it because you're young and you're going to live forever. 
Um, and so that's a, a very, very common thing. And then you get the other side of the thing, um, the, the story, the more mature people. And You mean old people? Yeah, sorry. We, we use the term mature, Peter. It's, we it's, know it's what much she means. more polite. Yes, go on. <laughs> okay, the old people, and, um, and they want you to do everything that you possibly can so that they will stay on the planet longer. I am, of course, speaking of my uh, patients who don't know God. I have many who do, and the difference between the two sets of patients is quite profound when it comes to illness in general and when it comes to dying at the other, well, at the end of life. Thank you. That's fascinating. Um, the first bit of what you're saying, GPs, I, I often talk to GPs about this sort of issue, and some of them use the word entitlement. It's oh, as yes. though you... Ha Go on. Yeah, um, you, you have the right to have a body that is perfect, that never breaks, um, and, uh, and so therefore when anything goes wrong, how, how dare that happen? And it's very, very inconvenient, and, um, and it's, well, it, it has to be someone's fault and definitely not your own. And the GP is meant to fix it. Oh, of and course. And if you won't, Dr Google will. Usually Dr Google has been tried first. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. And, uh, Michelle, this is fascinating because, indeed, what you have said uh, fits in exactly with what mm. I've been hearing from others as well, mm. uh, particularly on the entitlement front. Now, just returning to the, to the death issue, you've, mm. you've indicated, too, a, a considerable degree of, no, death is not something we talk about. Any, any no. comments on that? Um, I have a... Um, I, I have, well, many patients, but um, I do have one particular patient. I obviously can't mention their name, but uh, she has terminal cancer. And um, it has been very, very difficult to, in, in some degree, um, to manage this because she doesn't want to talk about death, even though it is imminent, um, to be, you know, to be frank. And her daughter is also quite concerned because there are practical things that need to happen because her mother is going to die and her mother doesn't want to think about it at all. And, um, and I've tried to be encouraging about suggesting that death is not the end. Um, and, but it's almost like she has her head in the sand and she just doesn't want to think about the fact that, that death is coming. Flip that to another patient that I had who was in a, who was in a nursing home, um, and, and he also was going to die, um, and his death was even more imminent, and I had to tell him and his daughter this, and, um, and he was very, very calm about it, and he said, I've been waiting, and it will be nice to be with Jesus. And it was a completely different experience. Um, he was... I'm not saying that secular people aren't ready for death. Um, you know, I haven't done their wills or whatever. But he had everything in order. Um, he, he actually said to his daughter, you can have the funeral the way you want it. So uh, I thought that was a nice thing. <laughs> um, and when he died, he just, he just slipped away with a smile on his face because he wasn't afraid. He didn't need to be afraid because he knew that there was a future for him uh, because of what Jesus had done for him. Okay, Michelle, and now we'll just have a competition here. Who would like to hear more about Michelle this, from Michelle this morning? <laughs> and who would like to hear from me? All those in favour of Michelle, say I. <laughs> Sorry, Peter. 
That's right. I'll come and see you later professionally. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. That's really, really helpful. Uh, brothers and sisters, you see what wisdom there is in this room. And Michelle's not the only one. I had a wonderful conversation with a, uh, a young lady last night and uh, about her experience of her office and where she works. And uh, now I'm not going to call you up. Uh, you know who you are. But, uh, but uh, the insight into what's going on. We are the away team. We used to be the home team. We're now the away team. We're missionaries in a society that does not know God. And when you go to a missionary, you find out all you can about the culture you're going to. You learn the language. You observe the customs. You see how people treat each other. We've got to be aware of what's going on in our culture if we're going to make the, make the, the, the bridge between uh, their ears about the gospel and the gospel. So on with the good work. And it's people like Michelle, but many others. It's you, many of you, uh, who will be able to help us to do that. Death, we, it's the unmentionable. We don't want to talk about it. And then is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which does nothing but talk about it. And uh, we're going there this morning. Bad luck, if you don't want to. What passage did uh, Princess Diana have at her wedding? Obvious. 1 Corinthians 13, correct. What did they have at her funeral? 1 Corinthians 13. Not this passage, which gives hope. But that passage, which talks about love, except they don't understand what the passage is saying. It's interesting, isn't it? Okay, to work. Stop enjoying yourselves and let's get to work. If you'll see a list of uh, uh, here, we've done anxiety and repression, in case you're wondering, and uh, we're now on to the pivotal question. 1 Corinthians 15, there is a pivotal moment in the passage that breaks the passage open for us, and it's verse 12. Have a look at that, please. Uh, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Okay, the pivotal verse. This is what was happening. The Corinthians, uh, some of the Corinthians were saying, well, there is no resurrection from the dead. However, we've got to understand this. We, it's not a sec they're not secularists. Almost certainly, almost all those who said there is no resurrection from the dead believed that there was life after death. They didn't believe Jesus was dead. They believed Jesus was alive, but they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead. Because in that ancient world, people, most people believed in the spirit escaping from the body and going up into the regions above, perhaps up to the moon or beyond the moon or wherever. If you were crucified, even if you're innocent, you had to stay down because you were, you were, you, your body, you, you're a hopeless person if you're crucified, obviously. So you'd probably haunt the earth if you were crucified. Everyone believed in life after death. That was not the issue. Some of them were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, why were they saying there is no resurrection from the dead? Uh, easy. Well, it's not easy for you. You such ignoramuses. Because, as Michelle has just told us, we occupy the most perfect bodies that human beings have ever had in the whole history of the human race. But if you went back 50 years pre-penicillin, uh, a bit more than that, if you went back in, into the 19th century, if you went back every successive century, the bodies that people had did not work properly. 
Can you imagine what dentistry, what, what, what your dental problems were when there was no proper dentistry? Can you imagine simple things which would bring you down? Can you imagine being a, a, a simple thing which could be fixed today with surgery and, and you've only got one arm? Can you imagine you have an accident? Nothing can... Can you imagine your eyes? You didn't have glasses. So how many of us wear glasses? Of course we have to. And you weren't proper glasses. The body in the ancient world was your enemy. It was getting in the way of your fulfillment. And so the future, as far as you could envisage it, was leave the body behind. Let the spirit go into the heavens and be perfect up there. The last thing on earth you ever wanted in the future life was a body. The body was the enemy. Now do you understand why this is the pivotal verse here? He's not speaking to people who deny life after death. If it is preached that Christ has been, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And this is also an insight into how difficult the gospel was to preach. Because they went around preaching. First of all, there was this man in Palestine. Oh, you mean a Jew? That's no good to start with. Uh, who wants to listen to the Jews? Anyhow, yes, he was Jewish. Okay, good. What happened to him? He was crucified. Crucified? That's a laugh. That's a hoot. There's, a, there's an ancient piece of graffiti which shows a crucified man and a man worshipping the crucified man and it says so-and-so worshipping his God and the crucified man has a donkey's head on. It was so stupid that you could possibly suggest that a crucified man might possibly be your God. And it was virtually as stupid to say, well, what's the next part of the story? He was resurrected from the dead in a body? You're joking! The whole Christian gospel was ludicrously stupid to the ancient world, those people who heard it. It went against everything they could possibly have experienced or believed in. It's a wonder that we're sitting here today, isn't it? It's a miracle that we're sitting here today and that the cross has become the most instantly recognizable symbol right around the world. How come? Must have been the power of God. So the gospel is at stake with this question. The gospel was at stake. Uh, as he says, verses 12 to 19, um, now you probably need Bibles here, I'm not sure if, oh yes, I think we printed, no, I'm not sure we printed this off, but uh, he says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection for the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ was not raised, first of all. Christ was not raised. How can you say there Christ was raised, but there is no resurrection for the rest of us? And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Now, in the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 11, uh, he's reminded them of what they preached. And he said, this is what we preached, and this is how you've been saved. And he says, verse 3, what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Kephas, then the twelve, five hundred brethren, most of whom are still alive, and last of all to me. So the whole gospel was based upon 
Jesus being resurrected from the dead. That was the gospel that they believed. Now they're saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And he said, well, that's slightly inconsistent. You're saying there is a resurrection in Jesus, but there is no resurrection from the dead. And he's pointing out to them, no, you can't have one without the other. The fact is that Jesus rose from the dead, and if Jesus rose from the dead as witnessed, uh, verse 15, he says, more than that, we are found to be false witnesses. We've testified that God raised Jesus from the dead, but if he didn't raise him, then nobody is raised. So the whole thing absolutely hinges on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins and your faith is futile. Better not to be a Christian than to believe that somehow there was life after death but no resurrection because the resurrection of Christ is absolutely integral to the truth of the gospel. Now, it's not only integral to the truth of the gospel. It's integral to the whole plans of God, the whole plans of God. Now, I want to go there because very often when we're talking about the resurrection, uh, we talk about the resurrection as the sort of the, the important proof of the truth of the gospel. And in many ways it is. It's strongly evidential that the gospel must be true. After all, there were 500 people that saw the risen Christ. There was Kephas. There was Paul. We are witnesses. You're listening here to an eyewitness. So that's amazing. 2,000 years later, you and I are sitting here listening to an eyewitness and an ear witness of Jesus. Amazing. Okay, so the truth of the gospel does hang on that. But then sometimes that's all we think of when it comes to the resurrection. We never think of its implications. Because the truth of the resurrection is more than just its evidence that Christianity is true. No, no, no. We've got to look at what God's plan is here. What was God doing when he raised Jesus? Why didn't God just go along with the ancient world and say, okay, let's have spirits? Why didn't he do that? Why was the resurrection so important uh, in God's plans for the world, which were so different from the philosophers and thinkers of the ancient world, and indeed so many in the modern world? Because the resurrection reveals the plan of God. The resurrection is true and it's essential to God's plans. And this is what he says in verses 20 to, uh, verses 20 to 28 of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and then he uses extraordinary, unbelievable image I've never heard of before, the first fruits. Have you ever heard that before? The first, it reminds you of oranges, doesn't it? That kid, that little Joshua, You'd be in danger there of, of in front of us all torturing a child. Did you see the way he was? It was oh, it was exciting, yes. Anyway, Peter, Christ is the first fruit. Christ, the meaning of the resurrection is not, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible is true, but Jesus rose from the dead. He's the first. He's the first. He is doing, God is doing with Jesus Christ what he is going to do with everybody. This is the first orange to fall from the tree, but there's going to be a multitude, a bumper crop of oranges. Uh, the, uh, what the Bible does is really, really, uh, it's mind-blowing. Uh, what it says is, look, there's this present evil age in which we live, 
then the kingdom of God will come, and then there'll be the age to come, otherwise known as eternal life. I'll do that again. We live in the present evil age, then the kingdom of God comes, then there's eternal life, the age to come. That's what the Old Testament taught. Then suddenly, extraordinarily, Jesus comes, announces the kingdom of God, wow, is crucified and raised from the dead. Something has happened inside history which should only have happened at the end of history. Something has happened inside history 2,000 years ago which was meant to happen at the end of history. It's as if the end of history has come smashing back into this history. And you and I are living between... We're both in the old age here and we've entered the new age there. We are creatures of two ages. Absolutely astonishing. You know what the Bible says, doesn't it? It says that you have been raised from the dead already. You will be, but you have been. You are raised with Christ. It says you will be the Son of God. It says you are the Son of God. You will have eternal life. You have eternal life because we're creatures of two ages. The, 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 the kingdom has come and it will come with the return of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus occurring inside history says, the future has arrived. Get on with it. We are people. We are creatures. <laughs> Church is an old-fashioned thing. No, the, the whole Christian movement is the future smashing into the present and saying, let us take you into the future. Okay? So he says here, this is according to the plans of God. The first fruits of those of... For since death came through a man, dear old Adam... The resurrection of the dead also came through a man. Is Jesus still man? That's a rhetorical question. You know what I mean by rhetorical question? Answer it in your heads. Okay. I'm not asking you to call out. Please don't call out. Okay. I was a school teacher. I can't help myself. Okay. Is Jesus still a man? I can remember when I suddenly worked out what all of you have already known. It was just one of those moments I suddenly realized, no, I had this feeling that Jesus became man, was with us for 30 years or whatever it was, resurrected from the dead, and then went back to being God and ceased to be man. That is not the Christian gospel. You realize that, don't you? When Jesus took on human flesh and became man and God, the God-man, when he took on human flesh... It was permanent. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only that he died for us on the cross or even that he was resurrected from the dead. It is that in his mercy and humility, he has become one of us. He has become the new Adam or rather the last Adam. He has become the head of a new race which is connected to the old race. We has become what Adam should have been for us. And he will always be that. That's God's great plan, to scoop us up in him, the real man, so that we can reach the persons we were meant to be in Christ. Listen, listen. As in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Each in his turn, Christ the first fruits. then when he comes, when he returns... Those who belong to him will be raised as well. Then the end will come. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. It is as if, you know, sometimes people talk, oh, I have to be careful here, you might do this. Sometimes, sometimes people talk about 
worship leaders when they really mean people who lead the singing. I, I, I really think Christ is the worship leader. Excuse me saying so. Forgive me, band, if you do this. Uh, isn't Christ the worship leader? He is the one in whom you are united and in him he hands the kingdom over to his father on our behalf, so to speak. We say, well, how can Christ, he's God, how can he? No, no, but as man he is handing the kingdom over to his father. Look, listen, this is so exciting. I just can't believe it. It's so wonderful. Look, what's it say? Uh, uh, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of the God. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, the evil spirits of this world will be utterly destroyed by Christ after he has done that. And he must reign. Listen, have you got it open? Why don't we all read it? So why should I have all the fun? Ready? Um, if you've got it open, verse 25. It doesn't matter what version you've got. Ready? For he must reign until he has put all under his... Come on. Ready? For he must reign. Keep going. Is. Let's all say it together. Ready? And the last bit. And the last enemy to be destroyed is. We can talk about death because we are not frightened. We're like that second patient who says, Yeah, I'm ready. Death is horrible. We don't pretend it's not horrible. It is horrible. It's scary. Yeah, I'm scared. To met you guys, I'm scared. But I'm scared like you are when you're going, getting on a plane and going to Mongolia when you don't know what's happening. I know that death has been destroyed and I know Jesus who has destroyed death. Therefore, my, the blessing that God has given me is quite different from the secular mind which thinks that death, oh, I might live on afterwards, perhaps, or no, there'll be nothing. Totally different. He has put everything under his feet. Now, please notice he's quoting Psalm 8 there. Psalm 8 is all about humanity, right? What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for? Psalm 8 is talking about us as human beings in God's world, and he applies it to Jesus. He says Jesus is, remember Luther's great hymn? We're in Lutherville here. Uh, remember Luther's great hymn, which talks about, anyone remember, it's uh, the, the proper man. Is that right? The proper man. I think it's in that, you know, uh, that hymn of his. Hmm? I got it right, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the proper man. Christ is the proper man. Okay. Uh, so Psalm 8 is applied to Jesus here. And it says in Psalm 8 that we are, we are shaped, we are we are sort of created to rule the world, and it says that Jesus is the ruler of the world because he rules the world as man. Okay, and then he hands everything over to the Father, and when he has done this, the Son will be made subject to him who put everything... The Son, of course, as man, is made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. More of that in a later talk, if we talk about heaven. Okay, so the resurrection is not just, oh, it proves that Christianity is true. Yes, good. It's far more than that. It's, you, there, is no, there is no gospel without the resurrection from the dead and what Christ has done as a result of the, res the, the cross, of course, and the resurrection from the dead. 
Now, then there comes the question of the power of God, the power of God. Because um, if you slip down down to verse 35, if you've got it open, uh, Paul deals with a couple of questions that come his way. But someone will ask, oh, Paul, this is ridiculous. You're talking about a resurrection from the dead, bodies being raised from the dead. Okay, two questions, verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised, Paul? How does that happen? And then, with what kind of body will they come, Paul? And so, in a, a passage which, which glistens with marvel, he answers. Okay, and his answer runs along two lines, the how and the what. First of all, he says God's power. It's quite simple. And you know God's power. You experience it in this life. Look, how are the dead raised? How foolish you are. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. The seed is placed on the ground. It, it dies that the plant may come forth. Uh, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he's determined each seed. He gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind, etc., etc., etc. Look, you see it every day that God, the God of power, every time you plant an acorn, every time you plant an acorn, uh, it's not just a natural process. It's a divine process that brings forth from every single acorn that is planted and dies, so to speak, and then the tree emerges. And you say, how does God do this? He's doing it all the time. Do you think the God, the God of power, the creator of the universe, is not able to resurrect, even after your ashes only? That he will make, even after you've disappeared into the dirt, so to speak? Do you think he's not capable of resurrecting you? And it will be the body that was placed, will be the body that rises. There's continuity between you and your body and what will be because God is the great creator of the universe. What you sow doesn't come to life and so forth. So how will God do it? What will God do? Well, he refers there to God's wisdom, God's power, first of all. Secondly, to God's wisdom. Listen, listen to this uh, remarkable thing he says next. Not all flesh is the same. People have one, verse 39, people have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, there is the splendor of the heavenly bodies, one kind of splendor of the earthly bodies. Go out, look at this. You can't do this in Sydney, but I'm sure you can do it here. Uh, you go out and look at the sky. What sort of world? You, know, you are suggesting that God, what, sort, what do you think he's going to do with you? If he is capable of creating that, do you not think he may be able to do something rather good with you? That the body you experience now, and even though we are far better off than our ancestors, we still experience decay, arthritis and death. Do you think God is not able to take even the body you've been issued with and turn it into something Absolutely astonishing. Do you think he's not able to do that? He is an altogether wise God. He can do that. And he will do that. And that is the promise based upon the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we will see the victory of God, the victory of God played out in the very arena in which we've experienced weakness, decay, and anxiety 
and pain and suffering. So it will be the resurrection of the body. Look, verse 47, the body sown is perishable and be raised imperishable. This is you, folks. Perishable to imperishable. Sown in dishonor. Raised in glory. More of that in the next session. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That doesn't mean a body you can poke holes in. It means a body controlled by the Holy Spirit. Yes, at last. Natural, spiritual, but still a body. You are going to be raised embodied, not just a little bit of you, but the whole you is going to be there. Uh, it, the ancient world believed basically, the great generalization here, but the ba- that the physical was bad. The physical was bad. The Bible from start to finish says the physical is good. Food is good. Sex is good. The body is good. The created order is good. When uh, God speaks about the future, he says there will be a new heavens and a new earth. I don't intend to leave the material, natural creation behind. I intend to redeem it, renew it, and create it, and I intend to put you in it. Not as a sort of, sort of an attenuated spirit floating around like a sort of soap sud. But you as embodied with a new body, a wonderful, glorious, extraordinary... There are natural bodies, there's a spiritual body. The first Adam became a living being. The last man became a life-giving spirit. It says the first man was of the dust of the earth. You know, Christine knows exactly what I'm going to do now. She said, don't do it. I was about to sing one of my favorite Christmas carols. My old man's a dust man, but I can't do it. Okay. And those of you over 70 will know what I'm talking about there. Okay. The first man is made of dust. But we are not of the first man. We are of the second man, the last man. And look at verse 49. We're born the image of the earthly man. Yes, Adam. We will bear the image of the heavenly man. Isn't that brilliant? The heavenly man. He's not ceased to be man. He's the heavenly man. He is the man from heaven who comes and makes us in his own image. And then the marvelous passage that follows where the victory of God is just absolutely celebrated. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Okay, I can't do this by myself. Come on, let's all do it together. If we, you know, if there's any George Handel here, could you set this to music? That would be really, really helpful. Ready, ready. Verses 55. Uh, why don't we do 55 to 58 together? Ready? Go. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because the trumpet call, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and there will be victory in the air. The away team has won a miraculous victory over death over Satan, over sin, over the law as it accuses us, over all these things, so we will have the victory. And the victory will not be an attenuated soap bubble. It will be the fully embodied, 
change, transform body, not like your present body, it will be the body God intends for you. Who knows what that will be except Jesus had the experience. Let's just recognize that we're going to be like Jesus. Is that not enough? I think that's enough. You're going to be like him. That's like being like your older brother you've always admired (laughs) because he is our older brother. You've always wanted to be like your big brother and you're going to be like him because he is the man from heaven. And in the meantime, why am I anxious? Well, we're human. We're sinners. It's natural in a sense to be anxious. Anxious about the future, anxious about life and death. Have I re- is it true? All the anxiety will come your way. I don't doubt that. But it won't be the anxiety of the worldly person who knows nothing. It will be natural, sinful perhaps, but it will be natural. But your anxiety, and we'll hear more about this, your anxiety will be met by the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was witnessed. It was given by the scriptures in advance and witnessed by the apostles and many others as well. And it is the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The first man was a failure. The second man was a victory. And that victory is your future. Now, does that mean Christians don't do anything? We just sit around just waiting for heaven? The fascinating thing is that this gospel has been immensely powerful in the history of the world to change life here and now. Because this gospel of our hope transforms our lives and, as it says here, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And that's what Christians have always done. And as a result, by the power of God and the mercy of God, we've changed this world for the best too. And isn't that a wonderful sign of the truth of the gospel? Let's pray. Now, Father God, we thank you for your wonderful, extraordinary, marvellous salvation. We thank you for the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, according to the scriptures. And we thank you for that he rose from the grave, according to the scriptures. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we may forever pin our hopes on the truth of that gospel and then work for the Lord while we wait for his return or perhaps us going to be with him. And we pray these things, Heavenly Father, in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.